may be around the world, and thank you for joining us once again on truth2u.org. That's truth2u.org. Joining me is the Director of Education and Counseling for Jews for Judaism in Canada. The website is jewsforjudaism.ca. Welcome back to the program, Rabbi Michael Skoback. Good day, Jono. How are you, my friend? Okay. Wonderful to have you back on the program. Of course, we are continuing in our series exploring the book of Psalms, chapter by chapter, asking the questions, who composed the psalm? What is it about? What was happening in the life of the author at the time of the composition? How does it apply to us today? And also, uh, perhaps, what would Christianity have us believe about each psalm? And how does it deviate from the original intent? Uh, Today, we are in Psalm chapter 7, and it's quite different to the psalms that we've looked at already. I think it's different from a lot of the psalms. Well, it's a little bit longer, but I mean, immediately, verse 1, what I have is a meditation of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. Let me stop there. Do, do we know who, I mean, as far as I can see in the Tanakh, uh, this Cush, the Benjamite, we don't have anything on him. Well, that, that's the, the the big problem in this passage. Um, and what's interesting is that the translation here is the little devil in the detail. Um, the Hebrew word is is obscure. The, the beginning Hebrew word here, you had it as a meditation mm-hmm. by David. So clearly this is, you know, we know that David is uh, behind this psalm. But the, the Hebrew word here is a little obscure. It's shigayon. Mm-hmm. And meditation is, you know, I would say a very iffy translation. It, what would you prefer? Well, the, the question is, what does the, the word really mean? Um, you know, some people suggest it doesn't really have a meaning. Some people suggest that the shigayon was the name of an instrument that was used by the Levites. Okay. Uh, now, is there any evidence for that? So it's interesting that a form of this word comes up only one other time in the entire Tanakh, and it, it's in the prophet Habakkuk, chapter 3, verse 1, um, where the chapter begins, Habakkuk, Hanavi, Al Shigyonot. So it's a prayer by or or to or, uh, by Habakkuk the prophet mm-hmm. on on the Shigyonot, um, and it's usually there translated as on this instrument probably called right. a shikin. And so it's not really clear if this is really uh, an instrument. Some people think that it might be a kind of tune, not the instrument, but the kind of tune itself mm-hmm. might have been a, a shigayon le David. So, uh, and that's why I think the translation of meditation isn't horrible because really when you're playing uh, a song, uh, this kind of really, it's a uh, it's a it's a spiritual uh, religious poem. Mm-hmm. Really, um, it's for the purpose really of meditating. It's for the purpose, you know, of you know. First of all, David it was a meditation of David. You know, th- these are events in his life that led him to think and to reflect and to meditate. And the whole reason it's in the Bible for us is for us to, you know, uh, encounter these thoughts and meditate on them. Mm-hmm. So, it's not an awful translation, but it's a, it's a loose translation etymologically. Right. Um, now, the, the clearest or the, I guess, the most um, obvious Hebrew, uh, you know, equivalent um, is to the word f- that means a mistake or an error. Mm-hmm. Um, like in modern Hebrew, a mistake is a shigiyah. 
um, and in classical Hebrew, a sin that was done uh, unintentionally was called shogeg. Um, it's in the Bible, by the way, in, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 4, I believe. There's a whole chapter on sins that are done unintentionally, and that's the word, at least re- a related word that's used. So, the way most Jewish translations tackle this uh, psalm is that this chapter is really, you could say, a meditation that deals with some kind of unintentional sin by David or an error by David, or some render it as a mistaken choice that he made. Um, So, that is a a little bit of a clue. Um, It it may not really solve all our problems, because we're going to see that it gets worse as we dive into it. But but it it seems, at least from the Hebrew, um, a shigayon really deals with some kind of error, mistake, or unintentional Sin. He, as we continue to read, we'll find out he certainly believes himself to be innocent of. That's that's what's so strange, right? Mm. Meaning that that you know what's really interesting. Well, I, I don't want to to get into this yet, but you know, usually we we have noticed already, and we'll certainly see this in the rest of the Book of Psalms, is that David is really continually consumed by his errors. Mm-hmm. He always seems to be you know, having remorse for what he's done that's wrong and, you know, he's plagued by his errors. And in this psalm, he takes a little bit of a more defiant attitude, right? Like, like he's, he's, he's insisting that he was really righteous mm. and, you know, whatever I got was undeserved. Mm. And, you know, so it is As, as opposed to uh, uh, chapter six, um, the previous one, where he's kind of saying, okay, so maybe I deserve this, but does it have to last so long? This one, <laughs> he's going, I didn't do anything to deserve this. And he's sort of like, like indignant. There's mm. a sort of indignance, like, you know, uh, so the whole psalm is interesting in that, at least it, it leads you to believe it's going to be some discussion of a mistake that he made or uh, some kind of even a, a sin, of a lapse. And yet he doesn't seem to be remorseful in this psalm. Um, and then what we'll have to try and think about is what, what, what mistake or lapse is he referring to? So what we have to do is go a little bit further in this verse, mm-hmm. right, and, and answer the question that you raised. What is this... You know, al divrei kush ben yamini. So it's it's a shigayon, whatever that is. Let's go with the idea now that it's it's some kind of a meditation uh, by David that's dealing with a mistake that he made, and it's regarding. Uh, now, the, the, I think you rendered the word divrei as words of. Is that how you read uh, it? Concerning the words of words. Kush. Mm. Yeah. So dvarim, by the way, are both words and things. So, you really could read this either as the words of this person or the matters, right? The matters regarding. Really? Um, oh, for sure, because okay. the word davar is either a thing or a word. Okay. Um, so, the, the question is, this is a $64,000 question, who is this kush ben yimini? Um, and there isn't anyone that we could find in the Bible with that name. No. So... Um, Kush, by the way, let's make it a little more complicated, may not even be a name. Because Kush uh, is an area, isn't Kush, uh, uh, well, hang on. It's it is south an area. Of the, uh, south of the Nile, is that fair? It's an area, and the meaning in at least the normal Hebrew is that it refers to someone who is black. Right. So, really, um, it's speaking about 
um, a black person, mm-hmm. right? Maybe not a name. Maybe Cush is not a proper name here, but a black man from Benjamin, a son of Benjamin. So we don't really have anything clear here. Um, you know, it, it seems to be um, either someone whose father's name is Benjamin or more likely someone from the tribe of Benjamin. Usually that's how you refer to someone who was from the tribe of Benjamin, a Ben-Yamini, a son of, the, mm-hmm. of, the, of, of Benjamin. Um, and we know that Saul, Shaul, was from the tribe of Benjamin. And the way, uh, um, I'm not going to def- totally defend this yet, but the way this psalm is understood in, in virtually all classical Jewish interpretation is that it's really a psalm that to a great extent deals with David's relationship with Saul, and that the um, Kush, Benyamini, is a reference to Saul, Shaul. Um, what is the Kush part all about? Um, not clear. Rashi, who wrote about a thousand years ago in France, says that Kush is used because, um, you know, in the, in the place, places where this was written, it wasn't common to see people who were black-skinned. And so Rashi says, just as someone with black skin, they stand out in the crowd. So Rashi says that so too Saul was someone who stood out for a few reasons. Number one, he was unusually tall. Uh, He wasn't Mm -hmm. just like anyone else. And the rabbis at least considered him to be, even though when you read the Bible, it's hard to, to, you know, say obviously. But the rabbis actually considered Shaul to be an extremely righteous person, you know, he seems to have his gaps. Mm. Um, you know, like the, 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 the old, the American joke would be like, aside from that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? You know, like aside from the fact that he, you know, made some serious mistakes and was trying to kill David all the time, you know, he must've been a pretty righteous King. Um, but they do see him as being very righteous. And that's one way that they take this phrase that Cush is really compliment to him, that he stands out in his righteousness. Other people, say that it's referring to just someone else that is not mentioned elsewhere in the Bible. Some people say there was some person named Cush who was from the tribe of Benjamin that was a terrible enemy of David, and we just don't have any other references to him. Um, some people actually say that Cush um, from Benjamin, from the tribe of Benjamin, was actually one of the singers of this psalm, which to me seems to be very far-fetched. Yeah. Um, so, I, so I don't know how that one. No, well, that's, I mean, it's fair enough that it may be referring to someone whose uh, narrative is not found within the Tanakh, but evidently something has happened with someone. This is the only description that we have, and it's interesting that you should say that it may refer to uh, the words of Cush or the or the things, and by that matters, you mean matters. perhaps the property of Cush. Well, uh, possibly, but I think that the matters of meaning concerning the matters of. Well, let's let's continue on and see if we can make some sense of that. Now, what I would say is, by the way, hmm. just that the, the reading of this psalm as, ref, as dealing with uh, Saul is, has a lot of merit, meaning that we'll see that there are internal uh, reasons why the psalm might be dealing with him. But okay. I think there's one major problem with it, meaning that what's strange about the psalm is that it begins in the first verse by giving you the impression that, you know, it's dealing with David's relationship with a particular person, right? We don't know mm-hmm. exactly who it is, you know, but what, what happens is that the psalm, as we, we go through it, though, doesn't really focus on an individual person. It shifts to a great extent 
to David's uh, you know, adversarial relationship with his enemies at large. And most of them during his lifetime were non-Jewish enemies, you know, were, were the hostile nations around him. Hmm. And, you know, so that's part of the problem in this psalm is trying to get a handle on what really is, you know, at the bottom of this uh, shigayon, this, you know, this uh, meditation by David, where he, you know, might be referring to something that he laments, that he regrets, um, and it may have something to do with Saul. And uh, if it does, though, if it is really about his relationship with Saul, so why does everyone else get dragged into it? Meaning, what, why is it switched so quickly to, you know, speaking about David, uh, you know, wishing that God will strike down his enemies, and it's clearly not one person he's speaking of. Um, Let me throw, so, is there anyone who says that it may be talking about Shimi? Yes, actually. Because uh, he, he was a Benjamite, perhaps he was a darker man, I mean, I don't know, but that was the first thing that, that came to my mind. So, there is some... Uh, yeah, there are people who, well, they, they, certainly, they certainly cite him as one of the troublemakers in David's life. Hmm. Um, just maybe what I'll just do is mention briefly, um, and we'll see, we'll get a chance to revisit this. You know, what are some of the mistakes that David might be lamenting in terms of his relationship with Saul? Actually, the, the commentaries raise a number of possibilities, but I'll just share two of them. Hmm. One, and I think the first one is an important clue for us, is that we know David um, sang a song, a very, very sort of significant song celebrating the downfall of Saul. Um, and it's interesting, it, it, and when we get to Psalm 18, we're going to see that it's sort of strange in that uh, the song, song appears actually in the book of Samuel. The second book of Samuel, chapter 22, is David's song that is basically sung, you know, at the celebrating or, or, or commemorating or meditating on the downfall of his enemies, and it names specifically Saul mm-hmm. uh, among other enemies. And the, the almost verbatim, this chapter from Second Samuel appears as Psalm 18. Uh, there are very, very minor differences. And um, it could be, the commentaries point out, that maybe this is what David was concerned about, meaning that he may have been concerned that he was maybe a little bit too happy about the downfall of Saul. Um, After all, Saul being uh, a an anointed one. And his father-in-law and a righteous person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so, you know, th- there's a, there's a, uh, a statement in the um, in the Talmud, actually, but it, I think it may come up, yeah, it comes up in the book of Proverbs as well. It says, "Bin pol oivecha al tismach." When your enemy falls, do not rejoice. So it's one thing to feel relieved, but you know, to to write a whole song celebrating the downfall it's of his enemy. It's a enemies. different thing to dance on their grave, right? Well, he wasn't <laughs> quite doing that, but you know, David was a very sensitive person, and you know, if he went over the line, even in a subtle way, um, he may have been, you know, upset That's about a, that. A, yeah. Okay. Right, the other well, possibility, just one more, if I can, if I sure. can just share one more, the commentaries point out that um, there were times when we know David had a chance to actually do away with Saul. Um, mm-hmm. One was in First okay. Samuel chapter twenty-four, where um, you know they come upon Saul, and you know his, David's men say, "Look, you have your chance now to just vanquish him. You can you can just get rid of him in one shot." Mm. 
and David, you know, says, God forbid, he's the anointed of God. So, David just cuts off the corner of his garment. Mm. And we're told, this is in 1 Samuel 24, um, immediately after he does it, it says right there, I think it's in verse 6 there, that David had second thoughts. He felt guilty. Yeah, he did. About yeah. doing it, right? Yeah, even that. So, so, that might be what this psalm here is referring to, his feelings of guilt and remorse over having disgraced the king in public, um, you know, ruining uh, the royal garment. I mean, something, he, it bothered him to have done this, even though his men thought he was crazy. I mean, mm. what are you talking about? You, you could have killed him. You should have killed him. They mm. were encouraging him. But even cutting off the hem of, you know, a corner of the hem of Saul's garment, David was bothered by that. So, that's also cited as maybe something else that might be behind this psalm. But as I said, the, the problem is that it very quickly shifts, the, the whole content here shifts away from, you know, his relationship to Saul and it really focuses, you know, more generally on, you know, those larger enemies, the, you know, the, the Gentile kingdoms that were against him. And the only thing I can offer as a way of resolving this is when you go to Psalm 18 and when you go to Second Samuel chapter 22, the song that he sings uh, really sort of celebrating uh, and, and, and feeling good about, you know, finally being, uh, you know, relieved of all of the enemies that are attacking him. Mm. It, it specifically says it was sung regarding Saul and, you know, the other enemies. So, it could be that somehow th- this, um, you know, th- this relationship between David and his enemies always ties together Saul among, you know, uh, the other enemies. And maybe Saul is always highlighted because in many ways he may have been the most difficult enemy because whereas David would be able to strike back at his Gentile enemies, the, the, you know, the, the Gentile kingdoms that were mm-hmm. attacking him, he couldn't kill Saul. He, he, he felt restrained. And so in many ways Saul was a more implacable kind of foe because his hands were tied. Um, but it, it, I think it presents a little bit of tension. Um, so, that, that, that's, that's the bottle I'm smashing on the ship to launch this little chat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Well, it continues, says, O Lord, my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from those who persecute me and deliver me, lest they tear me like a lion, rendering me in pieces while there is none to deliver. I, and. You know I want to come back to that phrase like a lion. We'll look at that later on. But uh, spoiler, spoiler alert. <laughs> that's, the, um, that's the introduction. Yeah, well, that, that's actually the beginning of the psalm, right? Mm. Verse 2 is where he gets into it. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, by the way, that you know, this uh, phrase comes up so much in the Jewish-Christian interface, the idea of salvation and saving. He prays here that God should save him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's very clear here that when you read this verse, this word in the Hebrew scriptures, it doesn't have the same meaning as we find in the Greek scriptures. In the Greek scriptures, salvation and being saved just always deals with rescuing people from their sins. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, it says that his name would be called Jesus, Yeshua, because Yeshua is the word meaning salvation in mm-hmm. Hebrew. And it says he'll save his people from their sins. And so, you know, you see very clearly here that the word is used just in a very, very different way, that in the Hebrew scriptures, salvation basically is being rescued from physical danger, from Mm. political danger, from enemies, 
doesn't have to do with, you know, David here is not pleading that God should save him from his sins. Um, and, and you're right, verse 3, is, is, is it verse 3 in your, in your text as well? It, it's always one behind in, in, uh, in the English because it doesn't treat the, uh, the heading as a, um, as a verse. So I've got, that, it's actually verse 2 in the, okay. in the Christian translations. Okay. But uh, in verse 3, lest they tear me like a lion, should, should I ask you now? <laughs> this is our spoiler spoiler <laughs> alert for, for Psalm twenty two. Well, it is just briefly. I mean, uh, I, the word in question is uh, kaari, but I think this is kaariya. Is that correct? Kaariye. Kaariye. Yeah, um, it's it's a very similar form mm. of that that uh, disputed verse in Psalm twenty two, which in Christian Bibles is translated as um, "They pierced my hands and feet." Um, there it's ka'ari. Ka is the Hebrew letter that means the letter of similitude. Ka-like. Ari, a lion. Mm-hmm. Now, usually a lion is arie, is the full form. Um, but the shorter form would be ari. Um, so, here it's ka'ariye, like a lion. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I think every single Christian translation of the Psalms translates this as like a lion. Um, none of them have anything about piercing in this Although it, it, he's he's afraid of being torn, right? Like a uh, mm-hmm. apart, like a lion dismembering without a rescuer. Um, it's interesting, by the way, that some of the commentaries say that why does David here speak about you know? Because obviously, it, it's probably not literally speaking about his concern about being torn apart by a lion. It's a metaphor yeah. for his enemies. But why use this metaphor? So they say that just like a lion is the king of the beasts, so he's using it as a metaphor for Saul, who was the king of Israel. Um, you know that might be the reason that he he highlights this idea of the lion. But you're right, and there's going to be, by the way, another spoiler alert in a few verses. Another very important um, uh, piece of the puzzle in terms of understanding what this word means vis-a-vis Psalm 22. Mm-hmm. Um, so here you're right. This is a preview, you know, for the months ahead when we finally get for, to Psalm 22. For in, a, in probably about seven years we'll be there at Psalm, <laughs> <laughs> Psalm 22 and we'll come back to this. But uh, just make a note while we're there. Uh, and it continues rendering me in pieces while there is none to deliver. O oh Lord, my God, if I have done this, ah, if I have done this, now it's the this that we don't know what it is, but it says, if I have done this, if there is iniquity in my hands, if I have repaid evil to him who was at peace with me, or have plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. Yes, let him trample my life to the earth and lay my honor in the dust. Selah, Michael. Yeah, so here he's, you know, obviously this is, I think, even a little bit of out of, out of character for him. That he's he's protesting here his innocence, and he's saying that, you know, none of the things that I'm being accused of are true. Um, you know, he he's saying on the contrary, you know, I was good to the people that, uh, you know, that that uh, were tormenting me. You know, he he says uh, I didn't do any of the, the the terrible things that are I'm being accused of to justify my troubles. I even look what I did. I mean, again, if you look at this as being about Saul. I spared his life. I could have killed him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and one, uh, one, one thing, just well, sorry to interrupt you, but one thing that may suggest that it's not about Saul uh, in verse five: if I have repaid evil to him who was at peace 
with me. Saul certainly wasn't at peace with him. That's true, although they started off at peace. That's true, yeah. Um, and, and he might be saying, by the way, right, that, that certainly Saul's attitude was not one of peacefulness towards David, but certainly David felt no enmity mm. towards Saul, right? Mm. I, I felt certainly at peace with him. Um, and there were other times, by the way, in, in 1 Samuel 26, um, we have a story where Avishai, um, the general of, of David, wanted to kill Saul, and, and David again prevented him in 1, Cham- in 1 mm-hmm. Samuel 26. Um, and so, he's really here proclaiming his innocence, um, and, you know, he, he, I, it's, I think it's interesting in that um, he confesses at the beginning of the psalm, at least, he's admitting that he made a mistake, and yet, at the same time, he's saying, but look, um, you know, I don't deserve all the, the suffering I'm getting. You know, it was just a mistake. Meaning, maybe what he's saying is that I made a mistake and I regret it um, and I admitted my mistakes. But I wasn't being malicious. Exactly. And I don't deserve all this persecution. And it's interesting, by the way, that this idea of admitting up to mistakes is exactly why the, the kingship was taken from Saul and given to David mm-hmm. because the one – really great fault of Saul is that he didn't own up to his mistakes. Mm. Um, he always was able to find some excuse or push the fault onto others. He d- did not accept responsibility. Mm-hmm. He did not, uh, you know, admit mistakes. And we know that David was incredible. I mean, David, you know, he admitted when he was wrong and not just admitted when he was wrong. He, uh, he sometimes beat himself up. Yeah, he really felt it. He was crushed by his mistakes. Horribly. Mm. You know, he was basically, you know, paralyzed by them. And so, you know, this very issue of owning up to a mistake is really the, the uh, sort of the, the grand, the grandness, the greatness, the grandeur of, of David. And so, he starts off here by saying, look, I made a mistake. I feel, I, I, I regret what I did. But he's saying at the, at the other end of the, of the story, you know, maybe that's just between me and God, but I don't deserve all this persecution. Mm. And he might be here protesting to God as well. Like, God, like, what are you, you know, allowing this to happen for? You know, he seems to be indignant. Um, he seems to really say that, that this, you know, as we say in Hebrew, is a low fair. It's not, it's not fair what's mm-hmm. happening. Mm-hmm. I, didn't, I didn't do any horrible things. So, he, uh, he continues saying, uh, arise, O Lord, in your anger. So, he's saying, surely you're as cranky about this as I am. Lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies. Rise up for me to the judgment you have commanded. Uh, So, the congregation of the people shall surround you for their sakes. Uh, Therefore, return on high. The Lord shall judge the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity within me. So, he says, first of all, right, that... Since I didn't do horrible things, I don't deserve these punishments, right? On the contrary, he's saying, right, that I deserve your protection, God, Mm. right? And um, what he goes on to say is that, you know, when the, you know, enemies, when my, the heathen enemies, all these nations that are attacking me, right, the assembly of nations surrounds you, rise up uh, above it, return to your heavenly repose. He's saying to God, look, God. When they come and cry to you, when these enemies of mine come calling to you, you should ignore them, right? Go up to your heavenly abode and, you know, don't listen to their prayers. And um, he really calls, you know, he says, 
God is going to punish the nations, but judge me according to my righteousness and integrity. I mean, that seems to be the major motif of this psalm is that, look, I want my enemies to be punished. I shouldn't be suffering here because I was in the right. Uh, I wasn't in the wrong. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the very next verse, you know, he goes even further. You know, he speaks about being righteous. Um, Yeah, judge, judge me according to my righteousness and according to my integrity. Oh, but the wicked, <laughs> I mean, he, he really goes hard here, doesn't he? Yeah, and he's he's doing something here, which is, you know, again, one of the real central uh, points of, of contrast between uh, the Hebrew Bible and the Greek Testament, meaning that, you know, you have, at least in the teachings of Paul, a very definitive theology, which says that mankind is inherently corrupt and wicked. Hmm. And, you know, Paul goes on to declare there is no one who is good. Mm-hmm. There's no one who is righteous. We're all wicked. You know, the, the basic premise is that, you know, with the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, you know, Satan came to essentially corrupt mankind where we are, as many Protestant denominations insist, we are, um, you know, miserable sinners, mm. Um, the T in tulip stands for total depravity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's the, the judgment, you know, and the idea is that because we are so totally corrupt and unable to live righteous lives, God had to send his only begotten son to die on our behalf so that he could take our sins upon him. Um, you see that in the book of Psalms, Really, it's one of the major, major themes in Psalms. We're going to see this over and over again. Mm. And by the way, in Proverbs, which was written by David's son, Solomon, Mm. um, the contrast is a contrast. It doesn't say everyone is wicked, everyone is terrible, everyone is filthy, everyone is dirty, everyone is, you know, is basically a, a total loser. There's a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And that contrast is constantly coming up here in this verse, right? Let the evil of the wicked vanish, but sustain the righteous, right? So, there are wicked people and there are righteous Mm -hmm. people. And it's interesting, by the way, that he doesn't pray for the wicked to vanish. He prays for the evil of the wicked to vanish. You know, there's there's a... um, famous story in the Talmud where I think Rabbi Meir, uh, there were some uh, hooligans in his neighborhood and he was basically praying for them to drop dead. And his <laughs> wife said to him, right, this is um, in Tractate Brachot in the Talmud 10a, his wife says to him that you shouldn't pray for the wicked themselves to be destroyed, but you should pray for the wickedness to be destroyed, meaning mm. that you should pray for the, them to repent. And I think she quotes Psalm 104, verse 35, which says, let um, sins depart or cease from the world, mm. right? Not sinners. We, we don't pray for the end of sinners, but the end of sin. For I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, says God in uh, Ezekiel chapter 18. Exactly, right? That's not what God's agenda is. So, it continues um, and says, for the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. My defense is of God who saves the upright in heart. Very much in the face of uh, Pauline theology. Well, you're right. The, the idea that, um, you know, David is able to say with a straight face, right, that I'm someone, I mean, we have David speaking about himself 
you know, he was brutally honest about himself and his self-assessment. Mm. But God considered him to be righteous, and he himself, he, called, he refers to himself as a chassid, mm-hmm. as a pious one. Here he speaks about himself as upright of heart. You know, in the previous verse, you know, he's, he's righteousness and he's righteous. Mm. I mean, it's very clear that, um, you know, human beings have the potential to be uh, upright of heart, to be righteous, to be good in the eyes of God. Um, and that's why they deserve God's protection. And that's why David is saying here that I trust in God to be my shield. Um, and it's because and well, I was going to say it's more than just shield. As we as we continue on here, it's um, pretty serious stuff. Uh, it continues saying God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he does not turn back, he will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow and makes it ready. He also prepares for himself instruments of death, is what I've got in in front of me. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. Michael. Yeah, I mean, he's ramping it up here, as we say. He's ramping it up. Um, um, You know, he's really saying that this is serious business, that, um, you know, although it's interesting is that he doesn't outright you know, just simply wish for his enemies to be killed. He seems to be, you know, here at least hoping, right, or at least opening up the possibility of them repenting, right? It says in the verse, if he does not repent, God is going to sharpen his sword. Mm. I mean, that he, he doesn't, David doesn't just pray that they get wiped out. You know, he, he's sort of opening up this, this, hopefully, the possibility that they will return, they will repent, they will mm. change, um, but if they don't, you know, <laughs> God has prepared deadly weapons, right? And he'll use his arrows against these in hot pursuit, meaning he's, he is saying that, you know, God is not going to allow injustice to go on indefinitely. And, you know, wicked people will be punished. Uh, but God does give people every chance. You know, we know that throughout the Bible, that's what you were quoting before in Psalm 18, in mm. Ezekiel 18, that God is not out to get people. And he does give them opportunities to repent and to change. You know, Pharaoh was given so many chances. Mm. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, if someone com- continually rebuffs all of these opportunities to repent and to change and to get with the program, then they're going to be punished. And that's what David is basically saying here. Yeah, yeah, no uncertain terms. Behold, the wicked brings forth iniquity. Yes, he conceives trouble and brings forth, brings forth falsehood. He made a pit and dug it out and has fallen into the ditch which he made. It's very interesting, by the way, you know, that he's really saying here, that in many ways... He's dug his own grave. They, they really... Their evil plans will often backfire on them. It's interesting that here you have Saul that was pursuing David for such a long time with the intention of running him through with his sword. And what happens to Saul? He ends up falling upon his own sword, mm-hmm. right? On the very sword that he wanted to use on David, we see in First Samuel chapter 31, verse 5, that he ends up falling on his own sword. And really, what happens to people, you know, this is, I think, a spiritual lesson of the Bible, is that, you know, sin and evil basically brings, you know, their own negative consequences. It really, 
um, you don't even need to have you know God coming from the outside and and punishing people. They really ruin their own lives, mm-hmm. and so um, you know that's what David is saying here that they will ultimately you know fall into the very very evil designs that they had for others. I just wanted to mention that you know we we highlighted before Psalm twenty two about the like a lion. Mm. So, this verse here, um, I think it would be, what, 17 in your uh, edition? This verse... Uh, uh, he digs a pit, digs it deep, only to fall into his own trap. Yeah, the Hebrew it's actually 15 16. in the... Yeah, it's 15 in... Okay. In, yeah. 15 in the... In the uh, Christian translation. Christian translations. So, if you go to that uh, controversial verse in Psalm 22. Mm-hmm. We'll be doing this, and you think a few months, a few years. <laughs> I think, um, I think sooner, God willing. So, um, so the word there, is, as I mentioned, it's ka'ari. Yep. Ka'ari. Now, um, it really means like a lion. Mm-hmm. Um, what Christian apologists say is that it comes from the root kara, which they say means to, they say it means to pierce. Mm -hmm. So, they claim that, you know, if you go to the etymological root of the word, it has the root for piercing. Yet, um, kara, it's chaf resh hey, those three letters, it doesn't mean to pierce. Actually, there there are other uh, roots in Hebrew like Dakar uh, in Hebrew would mean uh, to pierce. We see that in the book of Zechariah. Yep. But here in this verse, you see that the root of kara means to dig. He digs a pit, not that mm-hmm. he pierces a pit. And you also see this if you go to Psalm chapter 40, verse 7. Um, it says there, Oznayim karitali, my ears you dug out, my ears you opened. Um so, this word will come up and we'll have to analyze, you know, because there's, there's a lot of ink that's spilled on the meaning of this word in Psalm 22, ka'ari, um, but here you see sort of the, uh, the refutation of what Christian apologists will claim, that the word there has the root meaning to pierce, and uh, it simply means lion, but if it has any etymological similarity, it's to this word for digging, which is not the same as piercing. Right. I hope that wasn't too technical. No, no, no. I, it, and we'll make we'll go into a bit more detail when we get to Psalm twenty-two. Um, we go to uh, now. It must be seventeen in the in the Hebrew. His trouble shall return upon his own head, and his violent dealings shall come down upon his own crown. And as as you mentioned, uh, that's what happened to Saul. He 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 did fall upon his own sword when he when he. Uh, was seeking for so long to put run run the sword through David. Yeah, and it, it, basically this just simply repeats the same theme as the previous verse. Mm. Um, you know, it's interesting that, you know, one of the stylistic things in the Bible in general, uh, it often happens within the verse, this idea of parallelism. You know, that when you go through the book of Psalms, you'll see that many, many verses will express the same thought in two different parts of the same verse. Mm-hmm. So, it'll take a thought and then just rephrase it in different words in the second part of the verse. And here, you see the same thing happening in two uh, sequential verses where, you know, one verse expresses the idea about digging a pit and falling into it mm-hmm. and the other one speaks about, you know, someone's mischief coming and recoiling upon his own head. 
Um, and actually, it's interesting that in this verse, um, it, it does use a parallelism. In the translation I have, it says, his mischief will recoil upon his own head, which is a thought. And then it's repeated in the second phrase, and upon his own skull will his violence descend. Mm. Um, so again, it's very, very typical of the style of the Psalms to basically have a sentence with two phrases where each one basically parallels the other. Interesting. Well, it, it ends, is this the apple on the teacher's desk? It, it says, I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. And that's the way he ends it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It, it, it's sort of a, a departure from what's been going on previously in this psalm. Um, you know, because he, he seems to have, you know, gone through different shifts in, um, you know, what was occupying his his attention, right? He, he begins the psalm by really pleading for God to deliver him. And then he defends, you know, his own reputation, mm-hmm. um, you know, from those enemies that try to, you know, give the impression that he was the one that was wicked. And then he starts to ask God to, you know, take vengeance against his enemies. Um, He wants God to reveal his righteousness. David, you know, expresses that he's sure that God is going to mete out justice to the wicked people. And he has faith that the wicked are going to be destroyed. And, you know, those are all basically prayers in many ways. But then, as in many Psalms, David, you know, is confident that his prayers are going to be answered. Mm -hmm. So, it's almost like at the end, it's like thanking you in advance. Yeah. Right? Like, (laughs) it is. Yeah. He, you know, he's like, look, God, I I know that you're a righteous God, and I, you know, I assume that, um, you know, that your judgment against the wicked will be completed. Um, and it's interesting that um, he says here that he thanks God according to his righteousness, um, which basically I think it means that, um, you know, I'm thanking, I'm thanking you, God, um, or I will thank. Actually, the, the Hebrew is in the future tense. I will thank you, God, um, according to your righteousness, and I, I will sing praises to God's uh, who is most high. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, it, it's interesting that, um, you know, in, in at least in rabbinic literature, there's a, a, a motif of actually not only thanking God when things seem to be working out, because it seems that that's what David's saying here, you know, that his thanking of God is going to, you know, sort of depend or be, you know, commensurate with God's acting according to his righteousness. Mm-hmm. But the Talmud says that we really should thank God for everything, even if we don't see any benefit now. Meaning, even if what we're experiencing now is negative, we should thank God. The Talmud says, in the same way that we thank God for the good things in life, we should also be thankful for the things that seem negative because in our lives. Because he is just. Ultimately. Mm. And, uh, you know, ultimately, we, we don't see the hidden uh, good in everything that God does, everything will ultimately turn out for the best. Mm. Um, and the other thing is, <laughs> there's a beautiful story where one of the you know great rabbis was approached by someone who said he couldn't understand how in the world is it possible for you know the Talmud to say that we have to be thankful to God for everything in life, both the good and the bad. He said, I can't understand that. It doesn't make any sense. So the rabbi said, you know what, you have to go see 
someone named Zusha of Anapol. He says he will be able to explain this to you. So this fellow travels all the way to the city of Anapol, and he asks around, where is this you know, Rabbi Zusha? And he assumed that this rabbi is going to be living in a nice place in the middle of the town. No, he's living you know, way beyond the outskirts of this little town in the middle of nowhere. And uh, he finally finds this big beaten down little shack that, you know, nothing. It looks like it hasn't been repaired in 200 years. He knocks on the door and he says, are you Zushi? He says, yes. He can't believe he's looking to this place that looks like it's the most impoverished little shack on the planet. And he says, you know, I was sent here to ask you a question. He said, uh, can you explain to me how it's possible for us to be commanded to be thankful for everything in life, whether it's good or it's bad? And Zusha said to him, I don't know why anyone would send you to ask me. He said, nothing bad ever happened to me in my life. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. I Uh, love that. (laughs) That's beautiful. Okay, my friend. We're done. Um, Well, we're done for tonight. (laughs) We're done for tonight. So that is Chapter 7. We'll be back to do Chapter 8 sometime soon in the future. And thank you so much. Uh, Again, Rabbi Skobak of Jews for Judaism in Canada. The website, jewsforjudaism.ca. That's jewsforjudaism.ca. Make sure you go there and also visit the YouTube channel, uh, Jews for Judaism. And I look forward to speaking to you again very soon, my friend. It'll be wonderful again. In the meantime, dear listeners, be blessed and be set apart by the truth of our Father's Word. Shalom. Shalom.